The Institute of Art and Olfaction is now in its 11th year of operation and to probably a lot of people that might be listening to this, uh, they run the annual Art and Olfaction Awards for Indie Perfumery. Saskia, thank you so much for joining me for this chat and I just wanted to probably touch on something to start off the conversation. Uh, I recently watched a video where you were on a panel for Scentwave uh, during Scent, uh, LA's Scent Week a couple of months ago and you mentioned uh, your impetus for wanting to start the the institute uh, was was the fact that you were finding that traditional perfumery or the perfume industry was kind of exclusionary uh, and it, it was difficult for you to get uh, some any kind of information or learn things do you can I get you to just elaborate on that well i mean that's that's basically it so i became interested in fragrance or perfume about 12 13 years ago maybe and i wanted to learn about it uh not not just to consume it but to actually you know i was an, i'm an artist you know so i wanted to make and work and incorporate it into art and um at the time there was really nowhere at all that I could learn. There were, there were perfumers teaching. So, I, you know, there was a couple of perfumers who, who taught classes, but there was no sort of formalized or institutionalized or regular, you know, access to the materials. And so that, it was that simple. I mean, it was selfish. I wanted to learn and no one, no one would teach me. So I thought I'd teach myself. And, and then assuming that others would also have that curiosity, I, I, instead of just making it a personal studio, I created this sort of open nonprofit to, create that access to, to other people. Um, that, that's sort of the genesis. That was the gist of the beginning. And looking back to the beginning, could you even envisage or imagine what the Institute itself would grow into and look like now? Has it grown into something now that you, you could not have possibly yeah. imagined? Yeah. I mean, it started, I mean, for uh, full, the full story is that it started, you know, uh, as a social, what's known as a social practice. So at the time was known as social practice and art. So it's art that's engaged in the community and, and trying to change something. So you, you get a lot of people who are working with nonprofits, especially here in California, that was a thing. So, so it was an art project for me, you know, in addition to being, the, you know, this other thing. And then what I imagined was, you know, I would do this for three years and move on, you know? So no, I mean, certainly the Institute has definitely had more staying power than I expected and has evolved and grown way more than I, I could have thought, you know. Uh, I can't yeah. even begin to imagine what your day-to-day -day at the Institute looks like, apart from being the founder and, and director, you're working with the board of directors. Yes. And uh, I'm interested in what your average day at the Institute would look like and how hands-on are you still with everything? Yeah, very, unfortunately. I mean, it's funny, I have a a new, uh, a new uh, colleague coming in and he, you know, he came in and I was sweeping and I've been doing solutions all day. And he's like, you know, you shouldn't be doing this, but, but that's, that's the reality is when you're running a nonprofit, you know, um, and, and you know, if there's a cockroach, I, I move it out. You know, if the windows need cleaning, 
I clean them. So very hands-on. Having said that, you know, over the years, thank God, you know, there's been a community of people who have come on to, to take, to help. So I have, a, I have a team now of people. And so we, we have a little crew in addition to the board of directors that, you know, we meet twice a year to, to do larger or three times a year to do larger scale sort of decision processes. But yeah, on the daily, it's very much me and my, and my crew, you know. Um, Was it a difficult process uh, finding the, the people to help you put together or run the Institute, uh, forming that, that network? Was it something that happened organically or was there a, a plan put in place, people you, you knew you needed to speak to? How did that all yeah. work out? Yeah, both. I mean, in the beginning, it was really difficult because in the beginning, you know, there wasn't much of a community, at least that I knew of here in, in Los Angeles. So, you know, the beginning, I was sort of reliant on people hearing about it and reaching out to me, you know, and, and, um, and asking to be involved and then, oh yeah, cool. So, I mean, I met, you know, one of our longest standing teachers, Ashley Eaton Kessler came to me that way. Um, but now, you know, um, now, uh, a lot of the people who work here have come through here. So a lot of the people who are on staff started by taking one of our open sessions, you know, 10, 11 years ago. Um, thank you. And my friend brought me a coffee <laughs> and then, and then sort of evolved their practice and then started working here. So Minetta came through open sessions. Julianne, who works with me here, came through open sessions, Mem many of the members of the board. So we sort of created our own community just through people's curiosity and participating in the programs, which is really cool because they've understood the, the Institute from the bottom up, you know, from the outsider perspective and now from obviously someone who works there. So it's, it's been pretty awesome in that way and as far as i know I'm, I'm not aware of many or any other organizations that are really doing what the what the institute is is currently set up for i know that you uh, have a variety of online lessons articles on the website uh, you you do the art the olfactive art uh, exhibitions, installations, uh, and I'm aware that you're also putting together a, a an archive or library of of sorts, cataloging materials, scents, and and so on. Yes, we're we're starting. Actually, I don't know if you can see it. Well, that's that's so. I, what I just showed you was uh, was our, our the beginning of our library, and then what you're not seeing is in the back behind there, and the, we call it the closet of doom because it's a mess, is, is about 12, 1,200 perfumes, you know, that we're trying to, there was, a lot of them were donated through um, a, a friend of ours, a friend of me and a couple people here died and gave a lot of them. So we inherited this collection and we were like, uh-oh, and he committed suicide, you know, so it was sort of, we felt like we had a responsibility to do something with this collection. So that started this new program, which is this archive um, where we're going to hopefully uh, create a, an, arc, a, an accessible archive of books and objects and perfumes here in California. Now, but, but your question was, are there other institutions doing this? And the, the good news is there are, you know, like there, at the time I started, there was the Osmotech, that was it, in, in Versailles, right? And their job is to, yeah, they archive, you know, perfume history, and it's a super, super important uh, role that they played. But what they didn't do, I felt, was 
create that access, you know, to just the materials, you know, like just what is hexanalysis three, you know? So since the Institute started at the time, as far as I know, we were the only ones, but since it started, there have been others that have come to the fore, like Smell Lab in Berlin, run by Clara Rivat, a library of, you know, dot, 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 olfactive materials in uh, Glasgow. Now there's a gallery in New York, Olfactory Art Keller, you know, there's, there's, um, I'm trying to remember her name right now, but there's a woman in Australia actually also who has, what's it called? Perfume Playground, maybe? So there's more institutions or organizations that are forming, you know, and the point of the Institute for me was to create a model that was successful and replicable. So my, my goal was never to make money. Thank God. It was to create a structure where people could see that you could actually maintain an open practice in fragrance uh, while not, you know, putting yourself out of business or whatever, you know what I mean? So that was the point. The point was to be copied, you know? So I, I, when, when people started opening these, these nonprofits or these organizations, I was super excited because it was showing that this is something that could be done. Open access can be sustained, you know? Um, yeah. Did you ever think of perfumery in, in, in as traditional perfumery that, people consume and spray on uh, as an art form or did you never think of it that way? Was there a point uh, where your your thinking changed on, on that aspect of perfumery as we all know it? My answer, I, when people ask me this, I always feel like I'm about to bum you out. But no, I, I, like, I did not care about perfumery, you know, is the truth. Um, I mean, I was raised partially in Paris, so I was exposed to it. Mostly I was, and I did look back in my childhood notebooks, of, you know, drawing notebooks, and I did find little perfume bottles and like I invented some perfume ads. So there was something there, but I didn't think about perfume in terms of something that actually related to me or my life. Because frankly, I mean, I don't know what your age is, but when I was growing up, you know, a lot of the fragrances that were marketed towards women were totally alien to how I understood my own place in the world. These like really fancy women, you know, and I was like, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm like, that's not me, you know. So I never felt like there was a way in until I discovered um, brands like um, Demeter fragrances uh, for, from Christopher Brocious, or you know, and even I'll, I'll say even like CK One sort of started to provide a little bit of a sense of access to the world of fragrance. So it, long story short, like. Perfume wasn't a thing that I fantasized over as a young girl, really, as far as I remember. But when I discovered the fragrance industry through a book by Chandler Burr about Luca Turin's efforts to prove the vibration theory of smell. What, Was that the Emperor of Scent? Yeah, the Emperor of Scent. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine, I was working at a TV network. He's like, you might like this. And it completely changed my life. So thank you, Luca. Thank you, Chandler. You know? Um, but what I, what, I, what I found particularly fascinating was, yeah, the, the materials themselves are, you know, these little bottles of mystery and beauty. It's totally engaging and exciting, you know. But in addition to that, the industry itself, the way it was set up, from what I could gather from the various books I read at the time, just felt really bizarre to me. You know, it just didn't feel inclusive. It didn't feel like it was reaching anybody like me, let alone people a little bit even more different than me. You know, it just felt like it was very cookie cutter, norm, Eurocentric, et cetera. So and maybe you can relate to this being in Australia, but, you know, on the West coast of the U S like, you know, we're, we're at the end of that world. You know, we are not looking to Europe. We're looking elsewhere for the most part. So it just felt 
really out of touch with how me and everybody I knew was living our lives. So that's what interested me. So you had a childhood growing up in Paris and you didn't always have this this interest in, in traditional perfumery, but uh, I, I'm always interested uh, to ask people and find out what, what their earliest uh, childhood or what their earliest scent memory, memory. is. What, what is yours? I have two. I mean, one is one is related to just my own personal experience. So I was uh, in the south of France in, in a place called Cap d'Agde, which is near, it's whatever, it's on the south. And I remember I was sitting on a bale of hay with my friend Valerie and it was summer and there was this nice green grassy hay note with some cows in the distance. And it, But it was also a haptic experience. It was the wind and the warmth of the air. And as far as like uh, perfume memories, you know, my, my first perfume was something that they used to give kids in France called Tartine et Chocolat, which is like a fragrance for kids, you know. Uh, and it sounds I, like a gourmand. Yeah. Well, you'd be, you'd be surprised. It's actually, right? It should be. It's actually citrusy. Um, but yeah, I know. But for some reason, I always remembered it as a gourmand until I found my bottle. I had the bottle still. So yeah, so that that's sort of, a very early perfume connection that I made, but that didn't relate to, to perfume with a capital P as, as sort of I experienced it as a teenager. That was more like a pleasant scent that you could put on to enhance your life, which is maybe how I should have been thinking about scent. But yeah. Um, was that an answer to your question or did, did I digress? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm always curious uh, about uh, to find out about uh, why someone really likes or connects with a particular scent. I know that some people, you know, love particular perfumes because it takes them directly back to a particular childhood memory. And other times, I know this happens for myself, that uh, I might really yeah. love a perfume purely because of the creative imagery that it, that it invokes. And, uh, and I'm always curious to find out how much it always intrigues me how much people think about the reasons they like a particular yeah. a particular perfume well, it's a challenging thing for me and this is something that luca turin said to me once he said you know somebody said hey you know what, what's your favorite scent memory or something he said look i've been working with fragrance for so many years i know all the molecules i've completely disassociate i've gone through the process of disassociating my my personal memories from these materials which are now working materials you know so and unfortunately and at the time i was like oh, come on dude like you know of course you have set memories but i and i do you know but I, I i have found that his his comment has started to ring true for me that i've been working with these aromatics you know on a molecular level each individual material for you know let's say 12 years nigh on 12 years and so now, you know, the scent of cut grass, for instance, rather than trigger that, you know, south of France memory I relayed, I, I immediately think, okay, hexanolsis 3, triplot, whatever the green materials are. So I start to equate it with this sort of working knowledge of what the actual aromatics are, which is really cool, but also kind of ruins all the mystery and fun. You know what I mean? Like it's, I, I don't get to be like, oh, you know, delve into my own personal recollections because it's, it's become my job you know, to know these things to a degree. So, yeah, so I have a disadvantage in that, in that regard. Having said that, you know, I will occasionally come across a fragrance that really, really does move me in a way that I can't define. 
you know, which, and, and so, yeah, recently I, I bought a perfume called Pistachio something by Kies or Kais. It's a very small brand. Yeah. And I, I don't know why. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like I smelt it and I was like, I've never smelt this before. Or, oh, it reminded me of blah, blah, blah. I just, for some reason, it spoke to me. So there's some, sometimes that happens where something just moves you and you can't really verbalize it. And I, and I like those moments because they're increasingly rare. I guess this kind of comes back to a little bit to the way uh, people react or, or uh, connect to any kind of art form. They don't necessarily have to understand yeah. uh, what is what it is or the, the technicali- technicalities behind it, but it, they, they might, uh, I guess good art is something that makes you uh, have a, a reaction, whether it's emotional, visceral, uh, and the same, I guess, would be for perfumes. Well, I think that's the point, you know, but I think that's, I mean, that's the disadvantage of professionalizing your passion, you know. I mean, I have friends who are artists, like visual artists, and they go to a gallery show and they'll look at a painting. They'll be like, okay, I see how they did that. Or, oh, so-and-so did that. Or, you know, it's sort of the the knowledge almost ruins the magic, you know? Um, And, yeah. I guess that circles back a little bit to this this, uh, thing currently where you, being enthusiastic or into perfume as much as, people like me are, uh, I end up talking to a lot of other people who are as interested as deeply into it. Uh, and, and then you find that, uh, the, the, the conversations that you have about perfume become a little bit circular or, you know, and, and frankly, sometimes boring because there's a sort of a, ta- a level of attained knowledge about what you're talking about. And, and I've really been finding it um, more interesting to when I'm talking to people who, who are not into perfume, don't mm-hmm. know anything about notes, uh, ingredients and all of that, and they're just smelling things uh, very instinctively and, and, and listening to the way they're describing it or the what what it reminds them of and and things like that i just find really interesting yeah and i can relate to that because i'm a lot of what i do here a lot of what we do is we have people like absolute newcomers i mean we're firmly oriented towards the outside world like we serve the perfume community to a degree but really our, our main purpose is to create access to new people so 95 percent of the people i interact with on a daily basis are walking in off the street and smelling these things for the first time and and I mean, even within that context, it can get a little repetitive. I'm sure, you know, you and I have both heard the scent is tied to memory. I don't know if you're aware. Yeah. Um, but th- nevertheless, the sort of enthusiasm and also the personal stories and the connections that it triggers are, are really pretty cool, you know. And I, I'd never get tired of that after 12 years, you know. It's, yeah. I, and the main thing, maybe you feel the same way, is this, the, the sort of... Um, the doing away of barriers that scent can create where and we have these open sessions where we have, you know, eight people from all walks of life, you know, some people visiting, some people from here never would come across each other in the real world, you know, and they're sitting here and at first they're kind of all a little careful with each other. And by the end they're smelling each other's arms and they're really like, they're making friends and it just, it does away with social boundaries, which is really super, super cool. And I think it's something about the embodiment of the experience. You know, it's like your, your experience is real. There's no, class there's no education you just your experience is real you know 
and it's valid no matter what you bring to it. From a sensory point of view, uh, the I think, to, in my opinion, smell is uh, is a real instinct, uh, instinctive, more authentic uh, way to experience something as opposed to something like uh, visual or auditory. There, sometimes when you're experiencing something with those senses, you can. There, there can still be a level of deception that I don't find so much with, with the sense of smell because what I'm smelling is is kind of real to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I agree with you. I mean, there's an incontrovertible truth to how we experience smell. You know, I mean, what I smell is entering my body, and my perception is my perception, and it's real. Having said that, on the deception question, I mean, I, as, as you're, I'm sure, very well aware, you know, I mean, there is a lot of deception in fragrance. And, and because it's so hard to verbalize scent, as I know you know, um, it's very easy to trick people, I think, um, and sort of sell them, a, sell them a perception that isn't necessarily real. But then what is real? You know, I mean, what is truth? Like, what is, what is our experience? It, if it's if it's colored by language, then does it make it less real? I don't, maybe not. You know, so I don't know. I don't know if there's. I don't know if I have anything very smart to add there, but you know. And that did just remind me of uh, something that was mentioned in the Scentrave panel at, at, at LA Scent Week uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the language used or the vocabulary mm -hmm. that exists to describe Sad. perfume and the, the notes that are being smelled um, and how people who are more into perfume um, and probably have access to a vocabulary that might might mean something to other people who have read the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like the word sheep. I mean, if you don't know what sheep means, if you're not bought into the perfume, you know, if you're not a fra frag head or whatever, whatever, frag com, what do they call it? I don't know what they call themselves, but if you're not, if you're not in the know, sheep means nothing to you, you know? I mean, you tell some kid in, I don't know, a mall in LA, hey, do you like sheep fragrances? They'll be like, what? <laughs> you know? So, I mean, the way we try to get around that at the Institute is we try to uh, create as much access to as broad a population as possible to the most precise terminology in fragrance, which is the ter terminology of aromatic materials, chemical names, material names. If you know and I know what methylcyclopentanolone or isoe super or whatever smells like, and I say that to you, that is a very precise communication. And there's no, there's no trickery or poetry that can change that, that communication. It, it, is, it is what it is. We both know what that is. You know? So that's sort of the way I approach that is the poetry's lovely, the trickery is lovely. I, I'm a big fan of creative writing, but if you really want to make perfume a form of communication, you really need to focus on giving people the understanding of what the, what these words mean, you know, and not through cultural tradition like sheep and whatever, you know, fougère and all these, even even words like aldehydic, you know, I mean, or fragrance families like aldehydic, that implies a degree of buy-in, you know, so... So what I'm trying to, I guess, do is create a degree of buy-in by letting people understand the actual material names and what that smells like. And then they'll be informed and they'll be able to use fragrance as a um, tool for communication. 
in a precise way. That's the goal, you know, of course it's tricky and you can't reach everybody, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. And even just within uh, one of the terms like fougere or, or sheep, uh, there can be so much variation in how something smells just within that one, uh, that singular. Oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Now, I also couldn't help notice uh, in your Instagram feed, there was a post there that mentioned uh, something to do with a PhD you're working on relating to perfume. Are you able to talk a little bit more about that? Trying. I'm meant to be in Ireland right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the middle of a PhD. I'm exploring the relations of power in the fragrance industry. Um, Surprise, surprise. You know, it's obviously my obsession. And I'm about halfway through and I'm doing it at University College Dublin in Ireland through a program there called Smart Lab, which is sort of a cross. It's like it's a program designed for adults, you know, who have a career or maybe late or mid career. Um, And it's basically a program where people who are working in uh, the field of accessibility. So that can be technology. You know, a lot of the people in the program with me are technology people. Or it can be how I'm interpreting it, which is, you know, access to, to perfume technology, you know. But it's all about, the program's about accessibility. And so people are working on, you know, AI tools for accessibility, blah, blah, blah. I'm working on mapping the, the reason or the, 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 I guess, the relationships of power that have created the industry as it is today, this sort of inaccessible space. And, and also how that's changing. That's, that's the cool thing is the last part of the PhD will be sort of mapping the, the evolution and the, quote, democratization of the industry through institutes like my own, bloggers, podcasts like yours, you know, how people are sharing and, and spreading knowledge in a way that we couldn't before the internet. So it's a, it's a big, it's like a big topic, you know. <laughs> but, you obviously sound like someone who needs to keep busy. <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a madness and a problem, maybe you know. What were, if any, uh, some of the biggest obstacles that you came up against when you were in the process of setting up the institute and even going forward that you didn't really uh, expect to come across? It, it's sort of interesting because I mean, there's the obstacles of setting up a nonprofit, and you know, I don't know. I mean, just renting a place and you know i had no idea what i was doing you know i was an artist i was and working at a tv network which which was i was a tourist there you know i was just i had no clue what i was doing but to be honest it was easier then than it is now because at the time since i had so little exposure to the industry since i had no idea what i was doing i didn't you know i didn't care like there was no i was like i don't care you know i don't care what people think you know i don't care what the industry thinks i mean who who are these people i don't even know these people they're all the way in wherever they are (laughs) you know they're not here in my little group of artists so it wasn't that hard you know uh okay having said that the caveat is since i knew nothing um and the public nature of the institute required that i knew know something you know so that people don't burn their houses down even finding the finding the people with knowledge who were accessible to me and local, I, I'd say was the biggest hurdle. But luckily for me, you know, um, we have in LA, we have Scent Bar and Lucky Scent. And I met, I met Franco and Adam who run Lucky Scent and Stephen who manages Scent Bar very, very early on. And so they provided a whole host of connections and resources and, and they, they helped me with, with just meeting Ashley, Eden Kessler, who, 
who was educated in fragrance. And then she knew some people who she could bring in and Sarah Horowitz Tron came in. So people started to trickle in who were knowledgeable and Yosh, you know, and there's folks that, that were working that were around. So just connecting with them sort of helped mitigate that. And then, you know, I made no promise and I made no pretense then as I do now of being an expert in this, you know, I'm not an expert in perfumery. I'm a nonprofit director, you know, so also mitigating expectations really made it easier. I think people didn't come to me expecting me to be like Isipka trained, you know, cause I'm not, you know, I'm an artist, you know, so that helped. Um, yeah. Sorry. That was a long answer. No, no, not long at all. Uh, and looking ahead for the Institute, uh, are there any main uh, goals or projects that uh, you're, you're thinking about or is it, is it at the moment really just yeah. the, getting the archive uh, library of materials done? Yeah, that's a big one. I mean, the launching our, our archive um, has been incredibly difficult, just a ton of like data entry and getting library of Congress numbers, stuff like that. Um, the, you know, we have, we have so many programs. We have the awards, we have our, our archive, we have a gallery, we have our education, we have experimental sentiment, we have a podcast, you know, we have so much going on that I think the big challenge for the next 10 years, I'll say, is, is one, you know, finding, finding strategies where if I get hit by a bus, what happens, you know, like finding strategies for the Institute to live beyond me. There's something called founder's syndrome. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's like when the founder hangs on to their baby, like with, you know, to the death, like, I don't want to be that person. You know, I want to be able to step away and hand it off at some point. Cause I think that would be healthy because it wouldn't be limited by me, you know? So that's the big challenge is sort of the next steps, like how the Institute survives past me, which thank God there's a lot of really great people helping with that. Um, that's the big picture thing I'm worrying about as far as like the, the programs, like the awards were coming up on our 10th year. So we have to make it really big and really fun. And that's a lot of work, you know, we're going to do them in Lisbon, which is going to be a lot of fun. That's a little spoiler. <laughs> as long as you don't mind me spoiling it. No, that's why uh, I, I said did it. note that the awards are held in different cities. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, that's 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 because I was raised between different countries, and if I don't travel, I go crazy. So it's my it's my very clever strategy for making my life what I want it to be. And so every what we're going to do now is every other year we'll be in LA because we're based here, and we need to do honor to our community. And the, then the other year we'll be somewhere. So you know, I mean, we've been talking about coming to Australia forever. You know, Lisbon is next year. You know, there's there's places we want to go. Cuba. My dad wants us to do it in Cuba. That's challenging. Um, I am putting in a good word for Melbourne if you do end up coming. Yeah, out. you're not the only one. There's a few people in Melbourne that are putting in a good word for Melbourne. <laughs> now, I'm going to ask you a couple of more personal questions in relation to perfume. Do you actually wear a perfume every day? Uh, yeah, I actually do. Uh, and I have an unfortunately large collection. Are you willing to disclose how many bottles that is? Lord, I haven't. You know, I donated a bunch of them to the institute last year, so now I probably have about thirty that are in in rotation. I keep them in rotation, and then when I stop using them, I donate them to the institute. I have this very fortunate thing where I have access to our archive, so if I change my mind, I can spray. You know, but right now in rotation there is um, Wonderwood by Comme des Garçons. Sorry to be so generic, but I like it. Um, there is Duro by Nasomato a perfume that Luca Turand called 
the scent that an Italian man wished, wished his crotch smelled like, uh, gave it one star. And I'm like, bring it on. Sounds fantastic to me. And I love it. I actually like Duro. I like Duro too. It's so beautiful. Luca doesn't like it, but whatever. We all have our opinions, you know? Um, and he's in, his is probably more informed than mine, but I like it. And then I have, uh, I have um, what do I have in there? I have uh, B by Zoologist. Super like dripping gourmand honey. I have, well, I just told you I got that pistachio by Kies or Kais. I'm not sure how to. I have a perfume called Chango by um, a Modern Peasant. A small brand based out of Oakland by Lakenda Wallace. I have got so many more. I know I'm f- I'm forgetting one that's really important to me. What is it? Oh, um, fundamental. That's the one. Yeah, fundamental is my number one go-to. I wear that maybe twice, three times a week. And I should I should just qualify that I have many, many, many more by all these amazing perfumers. And I hope no one's offended. I didn't mention their perfume. <laughs> Now, do you remember the actual first perfume you bought for yourself? Bought Duro by Nasomato. I mean, in this recent in this recent iteration of interest. So let's say, I think it was two thousand ten or something. I bought that. Yeah, that was sort of my my. Um, I, I I met so my introduction to this world was I, I read that book and then I, I I don't know how or why, but somehow I don't know how. I was working at a TV network, maybe it was through that, but somehow I managed to attend some event that Luca Turin did in, in Washington, D.C. with Christophe Lodaniel, if I remember correctly, and I met those two. So I, had, I met some really amazing people very, 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 oh, and Cecil Tolas as well, like very early on. Um, and so I had this, I think, abnormal entry into fragrance in, in that I met these totally, you know, I don't know, expert people quite, quite early. And so they introduced me to things, you know, that I don't think I would have had the opportunity to discover without their knowledge. But from there, I went to Lucky Scent and I remember Duro was the one I picked up and kept, you know, out of all the amazing options. Yeah, I still have it. Uh, And for anyone visiting LA and going to the Institute of Art and Olfaction, is it, is it set up for the public to be able to walk in and, and see what's there and smell what you have there? Yes. I mean, there's a, yeah, there's a location. I, it, it's funny. I'm laughing because on our, on our window, you know, um, people can't see it, but I'll describe it. I'm facing the front of the Institute, the main room, and there's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a former gallery space that is now our space now for 10 years in this location, but on the window, it says our hours are occasional. So people are always like, when can I come? And I'm like, I don't know, you have to find us. You know, it's a little bit of serendipity. So generally people come in for classes or they make appointments or, or they have, we happen to be here when they walk by. So there's a little bit of serendipity at play just because we don't have the, the budgets for the staffing to keep it open all the time. It's that that's the only reason, you know, but it is a location you can come in and smell things and read books and see art and, you know, have a coffee, have a chit chat. I'm curious to know what your views are on, on this, uh, given how closely you are working with independent perfumers, perf- uh, perfume brands. Um, and I was just wondering within the fragrance community uh, there is there is a lot i guess a discourse about the impact of uh 
cologne, perfumes, dupes, companies that produce uh, these type of perfumes. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious about what your general views are on that and, on, and what impact that might be having on independent perfumery. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a tricky question because, of course, there's two perspectives and they're both valid, you know. Uh, I will say that art needs to be supported and people need to support artists. So, you know, I think in that sense, the dupes can be damaging for artists. Now, do we consider a multinational corporation an artist? That's a question you answer. You know, I don't know. My perspective on it is that um, is that is that uh, creativity is something that needs to be respected, but also people's right to access things that they love also needs to be respected. And so, if you have these corporations and these companies, and you know, I'm not trying to be too critical. Like, there's room for that. But you, we all know capitalism is problematic. You know what I mean? So we have these companies that are selling this dream to us of you too can be exclusive and beautiful and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, selling materials and perfumes to us that definitely require artistry and definitely employ important, lovely people, nevertheless are overpriced or end up in the ocean. You know, um, I don't know. Do I have a problem with the fact that then some young kid who can't afford that can, can be part of that little dream for less? Not really, frankly, you know, I mean, I'm sure people will disagree with me, but I just feel like we have a right to engage with our sense of smell. And if it's at the, you know, if it's at the behest of these like sinister capitalist motives all the time, then we have a problem, you know? So I think the dupes in that sense sort of subvert that a little bit. And the punk rock in me is like right on, you know? Having said that, you know, for the for the artisan perfumers who are getting duped, that sucks because they're they're small brands and they really can't afford to to lose that income, you know. So that's my that's my answer. I'm sure, you know, I see both perspectives on it, but the, the punk rock in me is sort of quietly, you know, down for the down for the subversion, you know. And like you said, if it is introducing people to scent in a in a in a way that's accessible to them, uh, I guess it can't be a bad yeah. thing. It's not a bad thing, and and you know, there's some perfumers who are super savvy who who understand this dynamic and who are like, forget this exclusionary nonsense. Like, for instance, Andreas uh, Wilhelm, who prints his formulas on his bottle. I mean, how cool is that? You know, he's like du- duplicate it. If you have the desire and the will to duplicate it by all means, go for it. And his rationale for that is it's not going to hurt his bottom line because the people who want his stuff are going to want his stuff because they believe in him or whatever. And the people who know how to duplicate and want to sell the duplicates, it's not enough of an economic impact for him that it should, that it should scare him from being open, you know? And there's other perfumers like who believe that way as well, you know? I mean, so yeah, I mean, I I just think we, we need to get real, you know, this exclusionary sort of exclusivity stuff it's just it's it's just it doesn't lead us down the path of cultural development and evolution and you know i don't know i've had my stuff copied you know not perfume but other things and i you know it definitely stings you know you you feel it you notice it and you're like ah oh, bummer you know but i don't know the ideas are still come you know so just make something new and make something cool and forget about it you know move on Anyway, that's my opinion. Sorry, I'm sure somebody will disagree. <laughs> and I mean, it, it isn't just that black and white, is it? No, it isn't. And I, I should say my background is, my interest has always been in open source and, and I worked for like a piracy 
initiative in film and TV. So I have a distinct perspective on it that I understand is not, you know, it, and it's not everybody's perspective, nor should it be. It's just my point of view on it, you know, so, yeah. I'm going to ask you one final question, Saskia, before you go. Uh, and that is, do you think that the industry uh, is more transparent today than it was when you first got involved? No, I don't. I think that the industry, okay, the caveat is the industry is made up of people and most people I've met are awesome. Nevertheless, they're working within structures that they have no control over often that are not designed. <laughs> transparency doesn't, it's not an advantage to, to the board members, you know, to, to have transparency. So no, I don't think it's more transparent than it used to be. However, I think there's a whole bunch of stuff around the industry that is growing and evolving and becoming, you know, legit, legitimized in the public eye that is um, helping mitigate those, those, that, that sort of lack of transparency. So I think perfumery as a whole is more transparent. The industry itself is exactly the same, as far as I could tell. By which I mean the big industry, of course, like the, the fragrance houses. And I've noticed that even yeah. in the last uh, few years, or less than a decade, how much the growth of uh, niche uh, topics like perfumery, especially in social media, have kind of uh, sort of... Uh, proliferated a whole bunch of information that wasn't uh, always available to, to everyone. Yeah. I, I guess that's, yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah. So I guess more transparency exists for sure. Yeah. But the industry isn't at the root of that. It's, it's people like Christophe Lodemiel or, you know, it's people who are subverting that, that are, that are forcing this conversation forward, you know, um, and forcing that transparency. But I, I you know, I, as far as I can tell, you know, it's it's definitely an uphill battle, you know. But you know, this will change. Absolutely, Saskia. Thank you so much for your time and coming on to chat with me. It's been a big pleasure to meet you and talk to you and ask you questions. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. You too. Yeah, you too. I'm sorry I rambled. No, no. I love that you rambled, and uh, the less talking I have to do, the better. Saskia Wilson-Brown, thank you very much. Thanks, Pep. Enjoy your day. Bye.